0: the break we introduce that we are uh, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 14 through 22 we reveal the message which is that believers should avoid idolatry since everything associated with it is incompatible to the Christian faith exposes one to demons, and so harms a believer's fellowship with the Lord. So we consider the command, flee from idolatry in verse 14. Now in verse 15, we began with the reasons or explanation against idolatry. Now although the apostle did not use a Greek word that usually signifies reason or explanation. But, that are from those the apostle addressed, how he addressed the Corinthians, and what task he assigned them. From them, we really recognize that he's dealing with reasons for, against idolatry. Now, he also address them as those marked by good judgment. In 1st Corinthians 10:15, uh, when he says, "I speak to sensible people," that is, of course is a way the Apostle acknowledged that the Corinthians are able to comprehend the reasons he was about to give them against idolatry. And so we emphasize the fact that we are living in a time when people do not want to be involved in critical thinking. They don't just give us whatever and and people don't think critically, which is an important part of the Christian life, really. You need to think critically, because that's one of the things that will help you to solidify some truths that you can use to defend what you believe in. Critical thinking, but that is almost being uh, left out of the way today because many of us have been accustomed to uh, preachers who just tell stories, don't challenge your mind. Yet the Bible expects us to do that. So when He say, "You are sensible people," He's saying you have that ability. And I've mentioned that there's no believer that can develop that. Because it's something the Holy Spirit will provide you. So you should not be uh, one of those who just go with the flow. Whatever is the flow, you go with it. Think critically. Because you're not going to stand before the Lord and say, well everyone was doing it, whatever it happens to be. No. You have to stand for yourself. So, it's important that we do critical thinking. Now the uh, assignment he gave the Corinthians is given in verse 15 where he said judge for yourself what I say so we went through the words judge and looked at it and said in our uh, passage it means to evaluate and to evaluate something one means facts based on that we said there are three reasons the Holy Spirit presented through Apostle Paul, for prohibiting against idolatry. The first reason is the cause of the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper, described in verses 16 and 17, but for which all of, all of them celebrated and all believers do today too. Now the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper is described first in the, in the significance of the elements used in his celebration So the apostle Started with the cup Instead of the usual First element which is bread uh, Probably because of the flow of thoughts In what he's writing Because as I said uh, If he started With the bread When he gets to verse 17 When he's talking about the body he makes a little bit gap So he, the Holy Spirit direction starts with the cup The cup is the second thing but then he goes back to the first, the bread, and that helps him to uh, move right into, in his development, to what uh, he says in verse 17 about the unity of the, bo- of the body of Christ. So you see that as the Holy Spirit directed him, the apostle was critically thinking what is he's presenting to them. How's he going to flow? And that's what I believe the Holy Spirit uh, wanted him to do. And so we say that... Uh, it's so in verse 16 that he began with a question, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which, uh, we, for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? So we looked at that cup of thanksgiving and say, It's really the cup with its content for which we pray over giving thanks, but really we we'll pray for a blessing that the Lord will bring his blessing upon us. So based on that, we say that the sentence, uh, the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, describes in the second, uh, leads us to the second part of the issue involved in the rhetorical question of uh, the apostle in verse 16. Now so, this rhetorical question has to do with, of course, uh, the significance of ...of the cup of Christ, which we say is participation in his death. So we said that we need to establish that. So for that second part, we started to look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. And we went through it, and uh, based on that, we said that the cup or wine... ...in it conveys the establishment of a new covenant that was ratified... By the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, as indicated in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, which is where we start. And that's where we pick up this second session. Matthew 26, verse 28 reads, This is my blood of, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it is possible that some will celebrate the cup. Without understanding its significance, therefore, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul gives us the significance of celebrating the cup. In that phrase of First Corinthians 10:16, we say a participation in the, body, the blood of Christ. Now, some of course have taken the view that the phrase is dealing with physical drinking. Of the blood of Christ. Or. That the content of the cup. Turns into the blood of Christ. In some. Mysterious ways. Now such a view. Is really not supported. By either the Greek grammar. Or example. Of Israel's celebration of the Passover. Or even. As they say from even. Pagan practices of eating sacrificial meals offered to their gods we don't have any claim anywhere that represents that now other, other views or at least other people uh, view the phrase a participation in the blood of Christ as concerned with fellowship of believers during the celebration of the Lord's Supper which may be implied but that's not the focus of the phrase now we contain them that our phrase is concerned with sharing in the death of Christ on the cross. That's what it says when we talk about participation in the blood of Christ. That means sharing in the death or the blessing of the death of Christ. Now, to prove that this interpretation is indeed correct, we consider the two key words used. The fourth is the word participation. That is translated from a Greek word that may mean communion, close relationship, or association. Now, it may refer to a sign of fellowship or proof of uh, brotherly unity, so that it means something like contribution. The Greek word can mean contribution or even gift, as it is used. In Romans chapter 15, verse 26. Romans chapter 15, verse 26. Romans 15, verse 26 reads, for Macedonia and Achaia, we are pleased to make a contribution. That's, that word contribution is a Greek word, koinonia, for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So the Greek word translated participation here is translated contribution. And of course the word may mean participation or sharing. As in the sharing of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, as stated in Philippians chapter three, verse 10. Philippians chapter three verse 10. Philippians three verse 10 reads, "I want to know Christ." And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing that's a Greek word, sharing in his sufferings. Become like him in his death. Now in our passage of First Corinthians ten, verse sixteen, the word means sharing or participation. That is the act then of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association. So the sharing that occurs at the time of the celebration of the cup is described in the phrase, in the blood of Christ, so that you are sharing in the blood blood of Christ. Now the word blood, which is our second key word, is translated from a Greek word that literally means blood as the red fluid of humans and animals as in the description of what oozed out when the uh, body of Christ was pierced by the Roman soldiers while he was hanging on the cross as stated in John chapter 19, verse 34. John Chapter 19, verse 34. John, chapter 19, verse 34 reads Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, figuratively, the Greek word means life blood, life blood, as constituting the life of an individual. Thus, the Greek word used in our passage is actually uh, has its sense of seat of life in the Septuagint of Leviticus chapter seventeen, verse eleven. Leviticus. chapter 17, verse 11. Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11, reading the Greek word, where it's the word used in this passage in the Septuagint. It says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar it is a blood that makes atonement for one's life so because blood is considered seat of life the shedding of blood is the same as killing or taking of life as the word is used to describe the prophets killed by Israel's ancestors mentioned by our Lord in Luke chapter eleven, verse fifty. Look, look, eleven verse fifty. Luke eleven verse fifty reads: Therefore. This generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the war. In other words, those who have been killed. Now so, some English versions such as the today's English version and the contemporary English version avoided the use of the word blood in this verse. For example, the sentence... The blood of all the prophets that has been shed is translated into this English version this way. The mother of all the prophets killed. That's the way. So they avoided the whole word uh, blood because it really means, shedding of blood means killing someone. Now, in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the Greek word is used with the meaning life blood. Life blood. That is. Blood of a person considered as the seat of life. Now it is true that our Greek word refers to life blood. But when the word is used in connection with, with Christ in the phrase, the blood of Christ, it has special meaning. It has special meaning. Now we have started in detail in the first chapter of this epistle, the phrase, blood of Christ. To indicate that it is a reference to the death of Christ on the cross. So let me refresh your mind with an argument. We made several arguments. Let me refresh your mind with just one argument. And to me, it's one that you, you need to remember. If you defend the fact that blood of Christ doesn't refer to little blood. Uh, depending on the context, of course. So, I gave you this Argument that the Apostle Paul says that God reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son, that is Jesus Christ, using that phrase, the, I mean, using His death in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Romans in other words I'm saying uh, there are two passages I'm going to give you that even any time you don't have to remember all the other arguments just these two passages will help you to say to a person even when you read all these people the blood of Christ what she starts saying and all those things he said, no, it's not a literal blood it can't be a literal blood even people who say the blood of Christ is it's supposed to be for their healing. You know? I said, no, it's not the death of Christ is what is meant. Here is the fourth passage. It reads, For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now you note know here, the issue is reconciled. How? By the death of his son. Now the same apostle spoke of the idea of God reconciling himself to all things. But this time, he used the phrase, his blood. That's the blood of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. Colossians 1, 20 reads And and through him to reconcile to himself all things Whether things on earth or things in heaven By making peace through his blood shed on the cross So if reconciliation Mentioned in Romans 5 verse 10 Is through the death of Jesus Christ Certainly it is the same reconciliation that the apostle had a man in Colossians. But instead of using the word date in association with Christ, he used the word blood that was shed on the cross. Therefore, there can be no doubt then that the blood of Christ refers to his date on the cross. The point then is that the blood of Christ should not be thought of in a literal sense in many passages, but in a figurative sense to refer to his sacrificial death on the cross. So our examination of the key was then in the phrase of 1 Corinthians ten verse 16, a participation in the blood of Christ should help to convince you that the Holy Spirit intended to convey to us that any time We celebrate the the cup and the Lord's supper. That we are enjoying the benefits of His death on the cross for us. That's what He wants when He says participation in the blood of Christ. That we recognize we are participating or we are enjoying the blessings or the benefits of His death. So we celebrate the forgiveness of our sins that we receive through the death of Christ, as indicated by our redemption or forgiveness of sins, as stated in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. 7. Reads, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now you know it's through his death. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's, uh, God's grace. So when we celebrate the cup, we in effect celebrate our eternal life that was made possible through the death of Christ on the cross. We celebrate his victory over spiritual beings that are in opposition to God as implied by what the Holy Spirit as stated through the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. Colossians Colossians chapter 2 Verses 14 and 15. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 reads, Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, the cross his death. So in keeping with the victory of hostile spiritual beings, we celebrate our lost victory over death so that we should no longer live in fear of death, according to uh, Hebrews chapter two, verses fourteen and fifteen. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 It is since the children have flesh and blood he too shall in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death hence the next time you celebrate the cup you should think of the blessing that the death of Christ brought to you especially that of the forgiveness of sins without which we could not enjoy any of the spiritual blessings of God in any case, we had indicated that the apostle was concerned with the significance of the communion element. As we have explained, it is probably because of the flow of the thought of what the apostle is teaching here that the apostle referenced first the second element of the Lord's Supper celebration before the first element that is used. In the celebration of the uh, Lord's Supper. Now having given the significance. Of the second element. The apostle returns into the significance. Of the first element. Of the celebration. Of the Lord's Supper. He conveyed that. Its significance. Is to enable believers. To recognize. That they are part of the church of Christ. That's. What he wants us that you are a part of the body of Christ. You are a part of the church of Christ when you celebrate the bread. Now it is this significance that is uh, given in the rhetorical, second rhetorical equation of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 60. Look at that, it says, And it's not the bread that will break a participation in the body of Christ. Now, as in our consideration of the first rhetorical question, to support our interpretation, we should also consider the, uh, word, the Greek words used. The first word is really bread, and you say, well, I know what bread is, yeah, I know. But well, listen, let's see. The first word bread is translated from a Greek word that may mean bread as a baked product from grain, and so it is used for the celebration. Of the Lord's Supper, as in the original instruction about it, in which Christ used bread in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Matthew 26:26. 26, 26. It reads, "While they were eating." Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. However, the Greek word can also mean food. Food. As any kind of food or nourishment, as that is the sense that the word is used by the Apostle Paul in his address to the uh, Thessalonians in Second Thessalonians, uh, Chapter three, verse eight. Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Chapter three, verse eight. It is And, I mean, nor did we eat anyone's food. That's a Greek word, atos. Nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we walked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Now the phrase, anyone's food, is literally from the Greek, bread from anyone. Bread from anyone. Now it is in the figurative sense that the word is used by Jesus Christ to describe himself as the bread of life in John chapter 6, verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. John chapter 6 verse 35 reads. Then Jesus declared. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me. Will never go hungry. And he who believes in me. Will never be thirsty. Now in. Jesus Christ's claim. Of being the bread of life. He meant. That he is a way to eternal life. Or. That through or through whom one receives eternal life. Nonetheless, the Greek word is used in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, in the sense of loaf of bread. Loaf of bread. Now it is this then that is broken, as in the first element of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, in the clause of, First Corinthians 10, verse 16 that we're studying where it says, that we break, that we break, a loaf of bread that we break now the word break here is translated from a Greek word that may means to uh, break an object into two or more parts, but in the New Testament, it is used exclusively for breaking of bread thus, it was used to describe the laws. Uh, Jesus tearing a loaf of bread in pieces in his miracle of feeding the five thousand mentioned in Matthew chapter fourteen, verse nineteen. Matthew, and hold on to Matthew too. Uh, next passage will be in Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, verse 19. It is, And he directed the people to sit down on the cross, taking five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. So it is this breaking of bread into pieces, That the Lord followed when he instituted the celebration of the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, verse 26. Matthew, who cited it but looked at it again, Matthew 26, verse 26. It is, while they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying take and eat this is my body consequently the breaking of bread may refer to ordinary meal or fellowship meal of the type that the church practiced when they met at different homes as recorded in Acts chapter 2 verse 46. Acts chapter 2 verse 46. Acts 2 Acts chapter 2 verse 46 reads Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So, here, breaking of bread means eating together. That aside, though, it's really in the sense of to break off, to break off, that the word is used in a passage of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Now, when a believer partakes of the broken piece of the bread of, for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that person celebrates being a part of the Church of Christ, as implied in the passage we're studying 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16. Look at it again and say, a participation in the body of Christ. A participation in the body of Christ. Now the word body here is translated from a Greek word that refers to the body of human or animal. Now human body is to be understood in different ways when you see it in the scripture. Now the body could refer to the seat of sexual function as it is used to describe the state of Abraham when the Lord promised him of having a son As we read in Romans, chapter 4, verse 19. Romans, chapter 4, verse 19. It is, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body... Was as good as dead. Now that he is not talking about his body, he's talking about his sexual organs. So he say his body was as good as dead, almost impotent, since he was about a hundred years old, and and that Sarah's womb was also dead. So. Body does not always mean your physical body. Now, the body may refer to the seat of mortal life, so that Apostle Paul uses it to indicate being alive, in contrast to being dead, as to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse six. 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 6 Here is and hold on to 2nd Corinthians I'm going to pick up uh, some verses from 2nd Corinthians anyway yes, so therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are out away from the Lord. So the body may refer then to organ of human activity. What you do on this planet, it can be just used in terms of the body. So that it is this activity that is done through the body that will be evaluated before the judgment seat of Christ. According to Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. 2nd Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 10. It is, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All here refers only to believers, that each one may receive what is due him, for the things done while in the body, not also all the activities, that you get involved in, you say, whether good or bad. In other words, everything you and I do as believers will be evaluated by the Lord, whether it is worthless or whether it is of value for the purpose of being rewarded. So you put in mind, uh, it did not say good or sin. If I said good or sin, that would have been some problem. He said good or bad. Because anyone who is appearing before the judgment seat of Christ is, is already in heaven, so it's not that. It is all that you do, whether they are worthless or whether you're useful. If they are worthless, they're born off, no problem. In a sense, but it's a problem because you don't receive any reward for them. So all the people, Christian hustling and doing all this and doing that that. Then some of them will be shocked in heaven that all that you did you thought you were helping this and helping that it all comes to nothing because you didn't understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life or you didn't do it under the control of the Holy Spirit you were doing it so that they will recognize you and when you do that it's all waste in heaven nothing that's what you should be concerned with as a believer so that's why he said whether good or bad Again, I say it's not it doing say good or sin. It's good or bad. That's good or worthless because that Greek word means worthless. Anyway, the word may be used for the entire person, as it is used in Apostle Paul's declaration of what some in Corinth said about him, as we read still in Second Corinthians, look at chapter ten, verse ten. Second Corinthians Chapter ten verse ten. It is for some say his letters are weighty and forceful. But in person he is unimpressive, and he is speaking. Amounts to nothing. So here, the the sentence in person, he is unimpressive. Really, look at the Greek. Actually, says this: the body presence weak. In other words, they say he said tiger when he handles a pain. but when he comes in person, he's so weak. Can hardly you know. But so what they, whatever they say, but that's. How they tried to evaluate the apostle doesn't understand what uh, the Holy Spirit was doing with him. Anyway, the Greek word that we're looking at that means body can also mean physical, physical, as in James chapter two verse sixteen. James chapter two verse sixteen. James chapter 2, verse 16. It is, If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm, and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Now that phrase, his physical needs Is literally from the Greek The things Needful For for the body That's what the Greek reads The things needful for the body Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16 The Greek word is used With the meaning body So that it has a sense of physical Or The outer being of a person However When the word is used with Christ, in the phrase, body of Christ, it is subject to two possible interpretations. It could refer, of course, to Christ's earthly body that was subject to death, as stated in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Romans. Chapter 7, verse 4. Romans, chapter 7, verse 4 reads So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So here, body is referring to his physical body that was offered on the cross. Now another interpretation though, of that when when it says the, the body of Christ, it is a figurative interpretation that refers to the church of Christ. Church of Christ. And that is the way it is used in Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 12. Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 12. Ephesians 4, verse 12. It is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. It's not talking about physical body of Christ. So here it refers to the church of Christ. Now in our passage though of 1 Corinthians 10 uh, verse 16 the phrase Body of Christ refers to the Church of Christ. So, what is say, Participation in the body of Christ means participation in the Church of Christ. does then, when a person eats the bread during communion service, that person attests to the fact that the individual belongs to the Church of Christ. That's what we started with. And so we have actually uh, documented it, or demonstrated that to be true. Therefore, if an unbeliever partakes of the first element of the Lord's Supper, that is really a meaningless act. But for the believer, eating of the bread of the Lord's Supper, during a celebration, should remind the person, of the high privilege Of being in the church of Christ When you celebrate When we take, take of the bread It should remind you That you are a highly privileged person Because you belong to the church of Christ It's a very high privilege No, There's no privilege on this planet That compares to it The privilege that you are In the church of Christ So in any event then the first uniqueness of the Lord's Supper is the significance of the communion elements. So this brings us into the second uniqueness of the Lord's Supper. The second uniqueness of the Lord's Supper is that it portrays the unity or the oneness of the Church of Christ. That's what it portrays. Now, it is the truth that is given then in the clause of where we are studying First Corinthians 10 verse 17. The clause says, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. See, the Holy Spirit, through Apostle Paul, conveys to us in an unmistakable manner that there is only one church of Christ. Only one church of Christ. Unfortunately, in this country, believers act as if there is more than one church of Christ. As evident in the names Used to describe the local churches. We hear such things as a white church or black church. Now, such declaration is contrary to what the Holy Spirit says to the Apostle Paul here. Because he said, one church, one body. So, there's only one church of Christ. Although sin has caused believers to think otherwise. Now, If things have just degraded so badly, in some areas there should be maybe two or three local churches. But that sin has crept into the church of Christ. And has caused such a a havoc. That believers don't think about what it means, the church of Christ. A lot of people, it's not a a social club. Where you go and make your business deals. So you'll be in, in the crowd. Whatever it is. That's not the church of Christ. It's anything but that. But here we're seeing is One of those is. He says look at that. Because there's one love. So that we who are many. Are one body. One body. The church of Christ. Now to state strongly. That there's only one church of Christ. The apostle. Use two arguments in support of his point. Now, remember how I keep emphasizing the ability to reason, to make arguments. You just don't tell people, this is this, and you expect them to believe you. Convince them by giving arguments. Now, I admit also that no matter what you argue, people make up their mind they don't want to hear what you're telling them. They already made up their mind. You can argue all your mind. They don't don't care. Because they are not interested in truth. And as I think about it, there are very few people on this planet that are really interested in the truth. Very few. You may be one of them, but I'm just saying there are very few. Because the way you if you're really interested in truth is when the truth hits you at the face and you don't like it. What do you do? Oh, I don't want to go to that church anymore. Or whatever it is, you come up with your excuses. Truth is painful. And if it's not pain in you, you better ask yourself, am I hearing the truth? This is painful. Anyway, it is the, the apostle, in his first argument then, is that there is only one loaf of bread that is involved In the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So he said, there's only one body, one Christ, one church of Christ. First reason, one loaf of bread. So it is this, that is given in the first closing of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 17. When he said, because there is one loaf. Literally the Greek says, because one bread. (laughs) That's what the Greek say, because one bread. Now the fact... That the apostle used the concept of one loaf or one bread in his argument to support the concept of the unity or oneness of the church of Christ is, as we have said, the reason he mentioned the first element of the Lord's Supper as the second in our passage to enable the easy flow of his thought from the concept of bread. Body to one one body of Christ. Now that the Apostle, I mean that aside though, when the Apostle used a Greek phrase that literally translates one bread or one loaf, he was probably thinking of the inception, the very beginning of the Lord's Supper, where the Lord Jesus used one loaf of bread. But ever since that incident, there are several loaves of bread that are used in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Of course, the word one, that is translated, is really translated from a Greek word, that is a numerical term in some cases, with the meaning of something like one, that may also mean one, with focus on uniformity or focus on quality of a single entity. And so, in some passages, the Greek word may mean one and the same. One and the same. Thus then, when uh, believers celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is the same kind of bread that is used. Same kind of bread. So one and the same. So the point of the apostle is that there is one loaf of bread... That is broken into pieces for the celebration. In other words, there's one church. Many in it. Many members. So the the point again of the apostle is that there is really one loaf of uh, bread that is broken in pieces for the celebration. Now this fact is true even of the elements that we use today in our communion services they are made generally from the same dough of bread before they are broken into pieces or the smaller pieces that we use. Anyway, the apostle says that because there is one loaf of bread, then there can only be one church of Christ. Only one. As in the clause of 1 Corinthians 17, uh, 10, 17 we are starting when he says, We, who are many, are one body. Many, one body. So the apostle indicates that there are many believers in many locations, but they form one body. The pronoun we here is inclusive of the apostle and all other believers, including the Corinthians. So the one body... Of the apostle that he meant is the church of Christ or the body of Christ regardless of any human factor. Now what he said here to the Corinthians is essentially the same point he made to the Galatians as recorded in Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 28. Galatians, chapter 3, verses 26 through 28, reads, You are all sons of God. In other words, he says, sons, children. He doesn't say, you know, daughters or sons of God. Everyone is seen that way. You are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now look at what he says. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now notice then what it says. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now that means there is no ethnicity. I didn't say race because that's a meaningless word. I know it's a popular thing but it's meaningless for human beings. It is the word ethnicity. We say there is neither Jew nor no Greek, slave, not free. In other words, your economic status is inconsequential when it comes to the body of Christ. That's why it says slave, not free. Your gender is also inconsequential because you say. male, not female. Now, of course, uh, many times I have to always remember to. Make a comment on that. It doesn't, we're talking about status, not function. In other words, there's a difference between a man and a woman in the function, in the body of Christ. But they stand the same status before God. So, people shouldn't confuse that because of this passage. So, the point though is there's only one church of Christ that consists of believers from different locations, and of different backgrounds. So an implication though of this today is that it is wrong for local churches to be in competition with each other. Whatever reason they there, whatever they're competing, it's wrong. Since it does not make sense that a person is competing with self. Just one body, one church. That's what the apostle is emphasizing. Anyway, the apostle's second argument related to the first is that believers share the same one bread as in the last clause of 1 Corinthians 10:17, where it says, For we all partake of the one loaf. The word partake here is translated from a Greek word that here refers to eating something in common, with other believers when the Lord's Supper is celebrated. Anyway, the apostle continued to use the concept of one bread to drive home the point that there is only one church of Christ that believers belong. Only one church. They meet in different locations, but still one church. Now the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper, that believers partake, that indicates that they share the benefits of the death of Christ on the cross and belong to the church of Christ is then a strong argument against idolatry. In other words, why get involved in anything that is idolatrous when you belong to the church of Christ? Now, there are so many things and... I mean at this point we are, we, are, you know, we are in a season where a whole lot of Christians are in idolatry. Well, I don't know why they should be. But that's the thing. You have to decide for yourself what do I really want? I am one that partake of the body of Christ. Why should I be involved in idolatry? In any form or shape that it comes to you. So, in effect though, the Apostle meant that those who have such a unique relationship with God in Christ should not be involved in idolatry in any form or shape, including sharing meals at least to the Corinthians, including sharing meals with unbelievers in the idol temples. Remember when we studied that in the 8th chapter, some would go to the restaurants in the uh, temples and and the apostles are saying that's not really appropriate for the believers because of what goes in the, those temples. So, so that's the thing that the apostles second argument. We are in a unique body because we're in a unique body. We're unique, and we should never sell out. So, to say by being involved in idolatry. So let me end our story so far by reminding you of the message that we have been expanding, which is believers should avoid idolatry since everything associated with it is incompatible with the Christian faith. Exposes one to demons. And uh, when I think about it, and I just made a comment about the season. Yes. Look at how much demonic activity increases on through this period. And people don't understand that. They just laugh over it. They don't understand. If you get into adultery, you're exposing yourself to demons as a believer. So that's why it says, since everything associated with it is incompatible with the Christian faith, exposes one to demons. And so, harms one's fellowship. With the Lord. So think about that. ponder about it. And see what idolatry that you are involved in. And see what it does for you. As a believer. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning. There may be someone here. Or someone listening over the internet. We want you to know. Of the love of God for you. That love. Is revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. So That. He came to this planet such a sacrifice living in heaven to take on human nature to live in a world where it's nothing but sin to endure it so that he can preach, teach and reveal God to us. He did all that out of his love. So, after he finished preaching having demonstrated that he is the Son of God, through what he taught, through his miracles, it was time for him to leave this planet by offering himself on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. So, the one described as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world was arrested. Because when they came to arrest him, he asked them, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. With those words, every one of them fell on the ground because Jesus has identified himself as God. I am. But then he gave them permission. They arrested him. Eventually they took him. Made a mock trial. Condemned him to death. Because I was in the plan of God, for which he is a part of. So they took him. Tortured him. Now one of the things that is in the Roman Praetorium where he was tortured... We have a description from secular historians that tell us, if you knew Jesus Christ, when he went into that prison, when he came out, you would recognize him because they disregard him so much through beating. Can you imagine what it means? He was beaten with those whips that the Romans had for torture because they had spikes on them and they would hit the body and draw it and it would cause some blood to come out. Yet Christ didn't even scream. He didn't even complain. And they marched him to Golgotha. Nailed him on the cross. On the ground. And lifted it up. Sinking it. Causing more stress and pain. Yet the Son of God did not say anything. Until the last three hours on that cross. When my sins and your sins. Were being judged on the Son of God. It was so unbearable. That he let out that cry. Heli. Heli my God, my God why have you forsaken me he was forsaken that you may be brought in he was forsaken that you may have life how? the bible said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved why are you going to believe? again the bible says these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God Believing in him, you have life through his name if you believe that he is a God man who came, took on the uh, human body, was crucified buried rose again the third day. If you believe that, you will receive eternal life. That you need to do, my friend, to escape God's coming wrath. On the other hand, if you say, I don't care. Man, I am telling you, you are caught in with hell. And hell is not a place you want to be. It's not a picnic. You haven't seen any suffering on this planet compared to what hell holds. Just think about it this way. If it wasn't that horrible Why would God do that kind of sacrifice? It was so horrible. So escape it by believing in Christ. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will challenge us as believers to be mindful that we do not in any form or shape get involved in idolatry. This is our request in Christ's name.